Welcome to Community in Arabic, a podcast show sponsored by Lipton Yellow Label. We'll be chatting with successful Arabs in the U.S. and Canada and learning about their journey and how they positively impact their community. We are your hosts, Malik Abdul-Samad and Anwar Gibran. Uh, we're so excited today to, to be speaking with, uh, with Alex Debar. Uh, Alex uh, is a New York, uh, born and raised to, to an immigrant family from Syria and Lebanon. He's a second generation uh, leathersmith, great products, uh, great family business. And then, of course, he started his initiative uh, called Any Bag to do tote bags, but, but with a very interesting twist that we're going to learn about. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for taking time being with us. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Appreciate thank, it. Th- thank you very much, Alex. So just to start, you know, you come, you were born and raised in New York, but you come from an immigrant family. Um, would love to hear about your experience growing up to, to an immigrant family. How did that shape you and that connection you had with, with back home? Of course. I mean, uh, growing up in Brooklyn pretty much all my life to immigrant parents was always, I mean, when I was younger, it was a little different. Uh, I was always a little bit more shy or intimidated to tell people where I was from, what my background was, because there wasn't that many, you know, Lebanese or Syrian kids in my classes. Uh, it was mostly Italian kids or uh, Irish kids, German, but like Lebanese and Syrian, every time I said that, they would look at me like, where is that? What is that? <laughs> I was always a little bit shy. Um, you know, my parents would play Arabic music and I'd roll up the windows in the car. Yeah. Uh, so it was pretty funny, just the, the experience to where I am now with my kids. You know, I, all I want them to do is listen to Arabic music and talk Arabic and just really take the culture and embrace it. Um, you know, I didn't really embrace it fully and completely, I'd say, till about maybe when I was around 18 years old, maybe when I was getting into college. Um, when I first went, you know, when I, when, I, when I went to Lebanon for the first time as an adult, and that's really when, you know, I fell in love with it. And I was like, you know, this is, this is amazing. Our history, our culture, our food, you know, there's nothing like it out there. And, you know, I just, I really fell in love with it when, when I was around, you know, 18, 19 years old entering college. But uh, going there really changed my aspect and my outlook and really, really made me proud of who I am and where I come from. That's amazing. And, you know, uh, how is it like, you know, uh, being close to your dad and transitioning to start working with him. If you can just uh, give us and give our audience uh, an idea uh, also uh, how your dad came and, and, you know, started from scratch and started this business until you, you joined him and, you know, worked with him as well. Um, so my dad immigrated here during the late uh, 1970s when the Civil War uh, was going on in Beirut. My dad actually grew up in Bilsham, uh, in uh, Syria, huh? and he went to Beirut as a, at a very young age uh, with his family, um, and he basically dropped out of school in the third grade because my grandfather or his father went blind. So he became a man at a very young age and became uh, you know, responsible for the family at a very young age. So he grew up very quickly. He didn't have the luxuries of, you know, of a childhood. You know, um, he was, it was always work and, you know, how to provide for the family at a very young age, which, which is kind of how, you know, like everything we do now, we always look back or he always says to us, you know, I do this all for you guys because I didn't have this. But, um, you know, growing up with uh, my dad and just going to work for him was completely different from what I expected. 
after college, he did not want me in the factory whatsoever. Um, he was like, you're educated. Uh, you don't need to do this. Go out, find a better job. You know, I paid for your education. I sent you to a great school. I sent you to great high school, you know, um, do something better than what I'm doing. He goes, this is hard work. You work with your hands. You know, this is, um, you know, you know, you go to work, there's no thought behind it. You're just sitting there making bags all day. But um, I saw it differently. You know, he, he came here in the late seventies with like 300 to $400 in his pocket and nothing but a dream and zero education. All he knew, all, all, all he had rather was work ethic. So he came with that determination to New York city and Slowly but surely, he built a leather empire, I tell him. You know, till this day, he always looks at me and says, you know, I could have done more. I could have done better. I should have went to school. And I always tell him day after day, I go, Dad, you did more with little, with, with no education, than people that I know that, that went to Harvard or grad school and spent millions and thousands of dollars of, on, on education. I was like, you did, you know, you know you did, you're the American dream. You're the epitome of it, I tell him all the time. And he, he never really understands it. And I, and I realize it's because it's part of our culture also, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> we don't like to, we always think there's something better out there or we could do better. So we're very hard on ourselves. And I see that every day constantly with my father and it's kind of the morale or what he, you know, like what's he taught, what he, he's taught me growing up. So it's always like strive to be better, do better. And, you know, there, there's always something better out there. And, you know, I always tell them, I'm like, you're, you're completely wrong with what you did. You know, it's, it's amazing. And you should be very proud of yourself. Right. But uh, right. the, you know, the, uh, the chemistry between us yeah. growing yeah. up was, you know, I never really knew my dad growing up because he was always spending, he spent all his time at work. Mm -hmm. So in order for him to warm up to me or me to warm up to him, he's always bringing candy home or toys. When I was a little kid, I remember. Um, you know, cause he used to work six days a week, uh, from nine to, you know, he would get home at nine o'clock at night and I'd be already in bed sleeping. So it took us, it took me a lot, a long time for me to really feel, you know, like just comfortable, not like comfortable, but like understand like, oh, that, that my dad goes to work all day. That's why I don't see him. Um, but I spent most of my time with my, my mom and my brothers and my sisters, but, um, you know, not until high school when I really started working there in the summers. I understood the, like, you know, what he goes through day in, day out. Then after college, you know, and I, deci I decided I wanted to go work for him, he was just completely against it. We butted heads. We, we fought day and night. Uh, we'd go home. I'd go home, have dinner when I was still living at home with them, and it would be complete silence. Um, I'd eat dinner. I'd say to my mom, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to my bedroom, and that was it. And I wouldn't talk to him until the next morning on the car ride home. If there was a problem at work, we would talk about it on the car ride home at dinner and I just like, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, but it didn't become, you know, like the, the chemistry didn't adjust, I'd say, until one day I brought a big order in and he was like, all right, this is, you know, you're good at this. Yeah. So I really had to prove myself to him and show him like my, I guess, my compassion towards the, the, the to the industry that he built or the, the leather factory that he built from nothing. That's really interesting. I love this story because it's typically the other way around. Like you grow up, you go to college, and then the family is like, come take over the family business, come join the family business. And in your case, it was stay away from the business and do your own thing. 
Yeah, he did not want me there whatsoever. I mean, I remember so many like weeks where we wouldn't talk. And my mom was like, talk to your dad. I was like, no, I can't. He's too stubborn. He doesn't oh. see my way. He's old school. I'm new school. Like, I see things differently. Like, I want to implement, you know, emails, for example. That was the first thing I brought in when I started working with him. And he thought I was, I was crazy. He was like, why are you bringing this? We have a fax machine. Or pick up the phone and call. I was like, it doesn't work like that anymore. So um, it was, there was a lot of adjustment. What, what really intrigued you about the business? It's a, it's, it's a few things. Um, I'm very creative. I'm artistic. I like to work with my hands. Um, my dream when I was in high school was to go on to architecture school in, um, and get a degree in that and become an architect. Um, I started working construction management for a little bit to get my feet wet. Um, but I used to always draw and design all my classes in college. Like all my electives were all art classes. All my art teachers used to say, used to tell me, you really should go into, you know, jewelry or fine arts because you, you have that eye, you have that hand. Um, so just seeing my father create things, you know, using his two hands, making leather bags, you know, just taking a drawing and, you know, bringing it to life. I just, I was intrigued by that. I fell in love with that. And there's no better satisfaction. And I tell this to everybody than to see something come to life that you built, that you put together from your hands, you know, whether you're a carpenter or you're a mechanic and you build a car, like there's that, there's nothing like that feeling that when you see it going down the street or you see it working and you're like, damn, I made that. That's pretty cool. You know, for me, the feeling I get when I'm walking down the street and I see, you know, someone wearing my handbag, I'm like, that's pretty cool. They're, they're wearing it. They enjoy it. And I know every bag, like when I see if it's mine or not. And a lot of my friends are like, oh, how do you know this is? I'm like, there's just... There's little things. You always know what's going out of your factory. Detail. You, know, you know, I don't sit in the office and bark orders. We have 40 employees. My father's never sat in the office and barked orders. I've always learned from him, and he's taught me, if you don't get your hands dirty with your employees, you're, you're going to fail. You're not going to succeed. So for me, the satisfaction of actually getting my hands dirty, working side by side with my employees, understanding the product, you know, from A to Z, from not, not just selling it and telling a story, but being able to stand behind it 100% because I built it. I can guarantee it. There's, you know, there's no better feeling out there. How was it like the learning curve, you know, bringing all this uh, aspirations and creativity and starting working with your dad? Uh, uh, how was the learning curve learning the exact, you know, the artistry of creating bags. It's funny, like that's one of the things we still argue about day in and day out. I tell them all the time, my like, dad, you have 30 years on me. I will never be as good as you. Exactly. No matter, <laughs> no matter what you do. You know, like when he goes on vacation for two weeks, um, he's like, is the factory gonna fall apart without me? I'm like, no, it's fine. But as soon as he leaves, I change things up and I do it my way. and. Nine out of 10 times, it gets done the same amount of time, but in a different process. However, he'll come in, you know, maybe two, two days earlier than he was expected to come in. And he'll say, this is all wrong. Why are you doing it this way? And I'm like, dad, just leave me alone. Let me finish it because it's going to be done in two days. The same amount of time it would have taken you to complete the job. 
I'm complaining about under my way, like my way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have different thought processes. So he's, he always tells me, you'll never be as good as me. And I always tell him, you're right. I never will be. <laughs> but I have my own ways, my own, you know, my own, um, you know, process of completing things. You know, it's old school, new school mentality. And, uh, you know, that's the one thing we always go back and forth on and argue button heads about. But, uh, you know, the dynamic is amazing. People come in and they always see us like, you know, working side by side. And they, it's, it's pretty cool to be able to work with my dad. Like we've become best friends over the last, I'd say, uh, 20 years now since I started working with him almost. That's really amazing. You're, you're really describing the struggle of every person who's ever tried to work with his, with his family business like day and night, you know, just all the butting heads and trying to do things a little bit differently. It's but uh, uh, but uh, this lead to an amazing uh, uh, results actually uh, you know coming uh, uh, you bring a different perspective and of course caring for the business as much as your dad does and and uh, uh, that will result you know to building on top of his legacy i mean that was a, like one of the things coming out of college was i couldn't let his legacy go to waste exactly he built this from, from scratch, from ground up, you know, 100%. with no background in leather manufacturing and leather goods. When he was living in Beirut, he worked as a stock boy in a supermarket. Um, you know, that's, that's what he did. He, he wasn't working in anything leather until he came here and he got a job. And slowly but surely, he, he worked his way to the top and the guy decided to go. He was like, I'm retiring. I'm going to close the factory. And my dad was like, you can't. This is all I know. He's like, give me about a year. And he built his own, you know, saved up money and then built his and started his own factory. But, um, you know, it's, it really is the American, the American dream. And, you know, I'm very proud of him. He doesn't, he's not as proud of himself as he should be. And I tell him all the, all the time yeah. that he should be. Yeah. But, um, you know, what he did is amazing. And for him to, to create this and then for me to carry on the legacy with my two sisters and, you know, it's, you know, for me, it's everything. I love it. So growing up, uh, like in an immigrant family with with entrepreneurial, uh, you know, uh, uh, minds and and mindset, and you as well being an entrepreneur, uh, tell us about the moment uh, or when that. Uh, um, what were you doing, or what were you thinking about when when you started any bag uh, initiative and idea? So with the with the any bag, it actually started I'd say subconsciously about four years ago. Um, you know, one of the things I learned from my father was we never throw out any scraps, any remnants in the factory, because every piece of leather has value to it. There's money. It could be pennies. It could be five cents. It could be a quarter. Every piece of leather there there's a value to it. So we saved. We've always saved every piece of leather after cutting a handbag production and try to reuse it some way, somehow down the line. When you walk through my factory floor, there's bins lining up the entire hallway of all leather scraps. And we always find ways, you know, uh, creative ways to use it. So what I did four years ago was what was, uh, I created a, I made a leather carpet using all the leftovers. We cut it into thin strips and, you know, we had this beautiful six by five, um, you know, area rug or throw rug that was one of a kind and made all from leftovers. So that's been sh sitting on my sh my shelf for almost four years. Yeah. You know, fast forward, I just you know I, I realized you know the the pandemic we're going through with with you know, prior to COVID, but the the plastic 
uh, the plastic problem that we have, you know. That's a pandemic by itself. I mean, it's a worldwide problem. And one night I was taking out my garbage and I said, you know, this is crazy for a household of three, you know, the amount of garbage I'm taking out, what's the other eight and a half million people in New York City doing? You know, and then where is that going? So that just kind of got the, you know, the, the gears moving and the engines running. And I was like, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a solution or there's got to be a way for me to limit the amount of waste. Mm-hmm. Um, so that day I started collecting all the different plastics that started to come into the factory. Um, I collected all the plastics that we, we were getting from the supermarket or the grocery store, um, whether it was plastic bags or film that wraps your water bottles or your toilet paper. I was collecting all that from, uh, you know, newspaper bags. Um, so we started collecting that. I started having a huge collection in the back of the factory. And my father started saying to me, what are you doing with all this garbage? You're taking up all the space in the back of the, the factory. And I said, just trust the process. I have an idea. I don't know if it's going to work, but it could be, it could be huge if, if this does go through. You know, this could be, you know, this could solve one of the biggest problems that the, the world has. And, um, you know, flash, flash forward about a year and I started cutting the plastic up and, you know, just manipulating it, trying to see what I could do, you know, pushing the boundaries. You know, what other use could we do with the waste? Uh, what could we, you know, how could I upcycle? How could I repurpose it? So I decided if I could weave leather, why can't I weave plastic and create a textile? that's more durable than just a sheet of plastic. Um, So we cut it up into thin strips, started weaving it on our loom. And, you know, we made our first tote bag. Uh, The first tote bag that we made is about a year and a half old. It's the same one that I use every day now uh, for the past year and a half. And every time people see it, they're like, that's amazing that it's made all from waste, all from garbage and leftovers. And I say, you know, it's, it, it is pretty cool, but the, the mindset is you got to think outside the box. Uh, just because one item was made for a single purpose doesn't mean it's made for that single purpose. Um, you know, there, there's an alternative use just about everything. You just got to get creative with it. That's also the creativity and the entrepreneurship kicking in. <laughs> that's, where, that's really where it came in hard. And, you know, we, we made the Any Bag. We launched it last February. Um, we sold over 200 pieces. And... Um, you know, the feedback's been amazing. Yeah. But, um, a really cool project. Right now, I'm starting it just in New York City. But when you dive deeper into each bag that I make, you could pick out where the plastic bags came from, whether it came from Home Depot, CVS, New York Times. I, I was just going to say that's amazing. So you know exactly where, like what kind of waste that turned into. The story of that bag. Exactly. Every bag is unique of its kind, tells its own story. Right now, it's a New York story. Hence the name, any bag, a New York bag, or yeah. any bag. So it's uh, it's a play on words there. Yeah, but yeah. Um, the, you know, where the people that are making it are luxury artisans, they're craftsmen. It's yeah. not just you know someone making this in their house as a craft or a hobby. Um, so the the quality that's in there is second to none. It's the same people that are making bags for all. Excuse me. It's the same people that are making bags for all the luxury designers out there that are selling bags for, you know, thousands and $2,000 and up, you know? So the quality is there. It's just, it's a different approach. 
right? So, so throughout that process, you got a lot of exposure and you were on local TV in New York. Yeah. How, how did that all happen? How did they hear about the story? Um, how did that process go? So uh, how it started was we joined um, the Department of Sanitation of New York has a um, show called Refashion and Why. Um, they go, they get all these vendors, all these designers that either upcycle, repurpose, recycle clothing and try to, you know, just give it a second, a second use, an alternative use. But what was unique about my process was there was nobody else taking trash and giving it that luxury look and feel. So they were very intrigued by that, um, you know, by the whole process. And they, they came over to me and they're like, you know, we have the show in two months. We'd love to feature you. Um, so I got on board. We did the trade. We did the, um, the refashion show in, in Brooklyn. And that Saturday night, I started getting phone calls from news anchors or writers saying, you know, we saw your bag at the refashion event and we'd love to, we'd love to, uh, you know, videotape and film it. But, um, you know, the, we were on all the local news channels. Um, we did a big hit with uh, Business Insider on their Facebook channel, which had over two and a half million views. Wow. Um, so the exposure was great. Uh, and the feedback was major majority of it was positive. Some people questioned the price, but my response to that is I'm, I'm making it in the heart of New York City. If I was making this in Indiana or Ohio where it wasn't expensive, to live, you know, I could definitely reduce the price. I could bring it down to maybe half the cost, mm -hmm. but it's, you got to remember where I am and the location I'm in. I'm in the heart of New York city on 29th and sixth Avenue. You know, there's nobody left that still produces anything in New York city. Everything's been outsourced. We've been there for, uh, since 1982, since my dad started. So for me to take, you know, New York city trash and transform it into a luxury item, like that's a win-win right there. But my ultimate goal is to obviously bring the price down and make this more global. My, my slogan is, you know, a New York bag, uh, a New York bag made by New Yorkers. Uh, sorry, uh, a New York bag made by, made in Manhattan by New Yorkers using New York City trash. So it's like, you know, it's completely circular. I'm taking plastic and having it recirculate, recirculate rather than going to our landfills and polluting our waterways. So it's like you're... You know, it's a win-win. Exactly. Uh, so, Alex, now, uh, as you know, the pandemic and... What's when COVID hit us, um, well, it hit, hit New York City fairly hard, um, and we were forced to shut down, I believe, March 20th or 22nd. Um, you know, we were fully operational. We had 40 employees, and Friday afternoon at 12, we kind of just, I screamed out, said, hey, guys, we, we got to shut it down. Uh, this is getting serious. Everybody go home. We'll figure out a game plan. Uh, but New York City has to shut down right now. Only essential workers are um, allowed to go to continue working. Um, so that, that lasted about three weeks where I was home, but during those three weeks, I was on phone calls, emails, trying to contact any, anybody, you know, from any city representative or state representative that could make us, uh, deemable as a, um, you know, uh, 
a factory that could produce anything that is necessary for, you know, PPE, for the hospitals, whatever they needed. I was like, you know, use us for what we're for. We're a factory. You know, mm -hmm. we can produce and manufacture just about anything. Um, so it took us about three weeks to finally get in contact with people and just get things rolling. Uh, we started off working with a nonprofit where we donated about 5,000 masks at first. And it was just me, my father, my brothers and sisters that went in at first. Um, and we were just cutting and sending it out to home workers who were stitching masks and then donating them to local hospitals. Um, then we finally got a city contract from the state of New York to make uh, aprons. And we ended up making 200,000 aprons uh, for all the uh, local hospitals. Um, and then from there, I was trying to get a government grant for masks, um, which became very difficult for us. So what I did was I took it into my own hands and we started a GoFundMe. And from that GoFundMe, we raised $21,000 and we were able to donate over 16,000 masks to all the local hospitals, organizations, anybody that needed masks uh, in New York City. Um, so that was kind of how we transitioned the factory and were able to bring back all our workers. Um, because for me, it was, it was a shame just to see my factory shut down. Wow. You know, we're one of the largest factories in New York City. You know, use us for what we're for. We could produce anything. And I couldn't just see my factory shut down, my father's legacy just being shut down like that. You know, and on top of that, I have 40 people that depend on us. You know, they have families, they have bills. And, you know, if I'm not providing for them, they can't provide for their family. So it was, it was extremely important for me um, just to find a way to get the factory back up and running. And that's what we did for about two months, three months, uh, just PPE nonstop. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very rewarding at the end. Absolutely. That's a really noble mission. Yeah. Um, I'm Alex, so throughout your experience, <clears throat> graduating from college, choosing to go into a small business, you know, butting heads with your dad, starting your own thing, just going through every little stage of that entrepreneurial process. What is it that, that what's one advice that you'd offer somebody who's going to be in your place in a few years, you know, going through college now and thinking about whether to join the family business, you know, going to a little bit of an older school business, they have their own ideas, and how can they find themselves to be a fit um, in, in such an old, and not, not old, such a small business? I mean, I would always say just, my biggest thing is don't be, don't be scared to fail um, because you are. I've done it a hundred times. I mean, I, during college, I worked at Smith Barney. I interned there and I realized I hated it. I hated corporate America more than anything. And I couldn't wait to get out of it. And I remember like my senior year, halfway through the semester, I called a lady, like uh, the, the manager of the program, and I said, listen, I can't come back. Uh, this is just not for me. Like, I, I can't do this. I can't wear a suit every day. Like, this is, I'm just, I'm not happy. And I never turned back. And I started working construction management because I wanted to get back into architecture. After I graduated Fordham, I went to one year of grad school at Stevens University in Jersey. And at the start of the second semester, I made a U-turn. I said, this is not what I want to do. And I went back to my, that's when I went back to the family business. And I said, this is, you know, I want to take this on and I want to grow it. And, you know, I just, I, I fell in love with the industry. Like I, I grew, I grew up in the business all my life. Since I was five years old, I was running around in the factory. You know, I basically cut my teeth there. You know, my mom and dad, 
you know, we're both working there when I was a little kid because that's how they provided for us. Um, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's not a nine to five. You're constantly thinking about, you know, your game plan for the next day. You know, the, my workers leave at five o'clock, five thirty, but I'm there for an extra hour setting up and preparing for the next day in the morning. It's the same thing, setting up, preparing, making sure everybody has something to do. Um, you know, I, if you count the steps I take, you know, my father and I always have a competition who did the most, you know, when we have our watches on, he's like, Oh, I did 10 miles today in the factory. I'm like, well, I, did, I did six. He goes, you see, I do more than you. I, go, I know that you'll always beat me, <laughs> but it's always, you know, there's always a competition there, but it's funny. You know, I enjoy it, but uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of responsibility that goes with it, but you, you can't be scared. You can't be scared to fail and always try new things. Same thing with the pandemic with COVID. You know, I couldn't just shut the factory down. I figured, all right, what else could I do? And that's when I realized we could, you know, switch gears and go into PPE. You know, so we, we pivoted the factory from leather goods to manufacturing masks and aprons. You know, we, you know, also with, with the masks, with the bomb and, you know, with the explosion in uh, Beirut, we, we donated $3,000. We made 200 masks and donated all the proceeds to an organization uh, called Bebu Shebek in uh, Beirut that was going around and fixing all the, uh, the apartment buildings in the surrounding, surrounding area that, you know, were affected by explosion. But, um, you know, that's, I'm not in the mask making game to make money. And people always say, oh, you must be killing with the mask. I'm like, it's, it's, it's really not. I don't make money on that. It keeps the machines running. It keeps my employees employed and just keeps the factory moving. You know, I want to go back to making handbags. That's what I want to do. You know, like for me, making PPE, it's, it's helping. It's, you know, caring for my community, caring for one another. But that's, that's not what we're here for. You know, it's not a moneymaker. It's just basically, you know, putting food on the table for my employees. And that's, that's very important for us. Yeah. And my employees have been with me for 20 years, some of them. So, you know, we're, we're one big family. I, I really love it. And I noticed a common theme among all our guests that we spoke to is, it really comes down to what is it that you love to do? What is it that you value? And work ethic. And, just, and work ethic and just go at it, you know? Yeah. That's, that's really amazing. I love hearing the story. What's next, uh, Alex, uh, for, for Alex and for Anybag? What I'm doing now with the Anybag is we kind of relaunched it or we're relaunching it now because of the, during COVID, we kind of stopped everything. But um you know, the sky's the limit with this. Like we're trying to, now I'm trying to manipulate the, the textile that I created with the any bag to mm. see what else we can make with it. I'm actually making a surf bag, uh, a surfboard bag to see, you know, maybe it can carry and, you know, help clean up the oceans. Like we do, mm -hmm. we do an initiative with that, with, you know, professional surfers around the country, around the world, where we team up with them and, you know, they could push the initiative. But plastic is, is a big problem, man. You know, I'm building a business to go out of business. You know, the any bag for me won't be successful until we completely eradicate plastic in, you know, in the world. You know, yeah. right now it's, you know, cleaning up New York City one plastic bag at a time. But this is, it's far bigger than what it is. My ultimate goal with it is to take the program and have other cities adopt it, other states adopt it, where we build workshops and you're creating awareness you hire people so you're creating jobs and you bring in the looms that create the textile and you're making the any bag within those cities 
eliminating the carbon footprint of every city completely. So instead of taking that trash, that plastic trash that every city accumulates, um, you're recirculating it and you're doing a big favor to all the recycling centers because every year they spend a hundred thousand to, uh, sorry, 300,000 to a million dollars just in costs of repairing machines from plastic bags, clogging or breaking the, the system oh, down. Wow. Wow. So there's, yeah, it's plastic bags. No one likes to recycle them because it's, it's such a deterrent. It's such a nuisance. And you know, like it, it's a big problem. So like with the anti bag, you know, the sky's the limit. And I just want to take this globally and see what, could, so see what we could do with this. Like in my mind, this could be the next Tom's or the Warby Parker where it's, you're, you're giving something and you know, you're taking something and giving back. Um, but that's, that's what I need the city and state officials to really come in and be like, Hey, let's, let's join up and see what we can do together. Great mission. We'll be rooting for you. Yeah. Awesome. Alex, uh, it was an amazing, uh, you know, chat, you know, learning about, uh, you know, your journey and, and, uh, how you're positively impacting the community. And, and, uh, we really love the conversation. Thank you so much. And we look forward to meeting in person in New York soon. Take care. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please visit our website to vote for your favorite story. And don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to our podcast. Good morning. Together we feel like